Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Bussman. The idea for this episode was one million followers in 30 days. I came up with the idea because that's the name of a book called One Million Followers, How I Built a Massive Social Following in 30 Days by Brendan Kane. Brendan is a growth hacker. He built social media platforms for Taylor Swift and Rihanna, Charles Barkley, Michael Strahan, supermodel Adriana Lima. He's consulted with the National Football League and the National Hockey League to perk up their digital offerings. And he now says he thinks he can drum up a million followers in, get this, 48 hours. Well, I thought I'd be Brendan's biggest project yet. I mean, an old school guy like me. But ultimately, this conversation went a very different direction than I figured. Brandon told me that sometimes huge numbers of followers aren't what you need. Then he took me into a world of automatic email cadence and forming a strategic roadmap to success. And well, I emerged from this conversation much differently than I stepped into it. This exchange will give you just an inkling of what I'm talking about. I helped build a, a social media optimization firm where we were optimizing social spend on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and, and Twitter. And we knew exactly who to target in, within each organization. So we would craft and test messages to these people within these organizations. First, we started off on LinkedIn. And then as LinkedIn got saturated, we would extract their emails and put them in this automated email cadence. But because we were so successful at doing that, we were able to, and I think it was like less than four years, go from managing $300,000 a year in spend to $100 million a year in spend. What? I closed, I think close to $20 million with the revenue off of cold outreach on LinkedIn what? using the, these these methodologies. Man, I, I, you know what? I got to just smack myself on the side of the head and just get in the new game. Brendan's questions made me think carefully about where I'm going in life and how I plan to get there. I don't know how you're going to react to it. I'm still trying to process it myself. But I know I got to think bigger and sharper. I also realized I got to rewire myself. For decades as a journalist, I went out on stories with no predetermined goal. In fact, having a goal to bring back a certain kind of story would only corrupt the story. I'd be going out to look for and bring back what I thought the story would be before I knew what really existed. That to me is the worst kind of journalism. The best kind is when you go out and find what you didn't know existed and you relay that so that it's fresh for everybody. I need to protect that, but I'm coming to believe that's not gonna help me in running a business. I need to establish a clear finish line in my mind at the start in business, then go back to the start and go on a journey to reach that goal as efficiently as possible. Now this may seem laughingly obvious to anyone in business, but to me, it's an entirely new game. Well, I'm playing it and you're listening to it as it plays out week after week. 
I can only be grateful for this podcast, which has continually taken me to new ground. I hope it's taken you to new ground as well. Big Questions has guided me to my sponsor, Sportique. And I hope it's taken you to Sportique as well. Last week, I had on the founders of Sportique, Jason Franklin and Matt Altman. Got a lot of great feedback. And if you want to hear what everyone's buzzing about, go to sportique.com and use the offer code CAL to get a 20% discount on hoodies, sweatpants, and comfy tees pretty soon. If you like chinos, they're going to be there too. You'll quickly understand why NBA players head over to the Sportique headquarters in Phoenix to check out the latest offerings. And when you are in your Sportiques and eating at Trotto in Phoenix, well, life doesn't get much better. And now that you're comfortable just thinking about Sportique, let's get straight to my conversation with Brendan Kane. Here we go at the big table. We got Brendan Kane, and this is going to be the start of something beautiful. I just met Brendan two minutes ago, and I already can tell how unique he is uh, because he went to five colleges and graduated at the top of his class. And let me just get some background into this so we can understand how your mind operates because I have a huge challenge ahead of me and I need a mind like yours to beat the challenge. So where are you from, Brendan? Originally from Chicago, so that's where I grew up. And then you're in second grade. Did you know what you wanted to do with your life? No clue. Not at second grade. I, I don't remember what age it was, but I think the earliest stages of me expressing my entrepreneurial mindset was I would take toys and walk around the neighborhood and knock on neighbors' doors and try and sell it to the parents. And I just like what kind at of toys? Anything, stuffed animals, just cars, trucks, whatever it may I be. I never saw a kid selling stuffed animals in my neighborhood. What would you charge? I don't even remember. I think my parents would get strange calls and the, I don't even think I understood the concept of money at that point, but I was trying to sell it at, for something. I don't really recall. But you, my, you just knew, go door to door, yeah, knock on the doors. That's all I knew. I don't think I had a concept of money or what money was or how much to charge, but I knew that I could get something for it. All right, so then do you knock on doors of people you don't know or was there a comfort zone of, all right, Charlie will help me out here? I started with the people I knew, but then, interestingly enough, because I'm a pretty introverted person, I think I was starting to go extend beyond that comfort zone. I think at that age, it was such an early stage in my life that I didn't have any kind of filter for that. So I would just go off and just do it. I was just determined. And it kind of still holds true today because I am still very much an introvert, but I have taught myself. I go speak on stage in front of thousands of people or do interviews or go into meetings, and I've just found a way to push through it because I enjoy doing it. Do you think that helped you going door to door when you were really young? Do you think it helped you get up on stage years later? 
I don't know about getting on stage, but I think it did shape my mind from an early stage of just this sense of being an entrepreneur, carving your own path, and just finding a way to make things happen. And obviously, I wasn't very successful at it's selling so toys, toys. <laughs> to, to other well, people's good. parents, but <laughs> I, and it's it's taken me quite some time to get comfortable with this concept of of failure. But as we were talking before, like I am such an experiential learner that that's really the only way I can learn is just going out and doing things and figuring it out as I go along. So you get through high school. Is this a suburb of Chicago? Or yeah, you... north suburb of Chicago. And you're going off to college. What are you thinking? What are you going to do with your life? Well, it's interesting because in high school, especially like junior, senior year, I was a bit of a problem child. I got sucked into kind of the, the group of kids that got into a lot of trouble. I think I was the only one out of our friend group that didn't get kicked out of high school. And I think that that's primarily because my father was an attorney and they were probably scared that, that there would be some legal action if, if they tried well, to kick like, me out of school. The gang you're running around with, what were they doing? Uh, they were getting into fights and just causing trouble. I mean, it's funny, there was one of the kids uh, ended up on a story on Jay Leno because we were throwing a huge Halloween party and he proceeded to go around the neighborhood and steal Halloween decorations from houses to decorate the <laughs> Halloween party. <laughs> so it was just stupid teenager stuff. And I think when I got to college, I realized, you know, I've actually got to do something with my life. Like I can't just be a problem Stealing kid. Stealing Halloween decorations. Yeah, I can't just go around and cause trouble. And I was segmented from from that that friend base, and I threw myself into studying, and trying to figure out what is going to be my path in life, so that I can make something of it. And so, why five schools? So it was a mixture of reasons. Uh, first, I I transferred a few times because of majors, uh, so that was one reason. And in addition, I didn't really fit into the whole. Being an introvert, I didn't fit into the whole frat and sorority scene. Like I didn't get that. That just wasn't me. So I started off at a private liberal arts school that was very much that scene. Uh, so I felt very segmented from the rest of the population. Got to get out of there. Exactly. And then where'd you go then? I went to Southern Illinois for a semester. Carbondale. Because I wanted to study film. And how'd that go? It didn't go very well. <laughs> I don't know if you've been down to Carbondale. I've been to it's Carbondale. Not, it's not the, the it, best. It's not exactly Los Angeles yes. of the Midwest yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. And then I just, I kind of burned myself out. I was studying too hard. And then I moved back up to Chicago to go to DePaul University, uh, deciding I wanted to go back into business. And then. How did that work? I. It worked all right, but then I decided I want to go back into film. So that's where I went to University of Central Florida. Uh, I, I'm sensing it got a little too cold in the winter and you just decided to head down south. Yeah, well, I liked, I liked the fact that it was in Orlando too because I'm a big Disney World fan. So I lived in that kind oh, of ecosystem man. for a year. Okay. What, all right. I've got some funny I'm stories gonna, about I'm that. I'm going to ask you about that because um, I want to know all about Walt Disney. Do you uh, know much about him? I know a little bit about him, not a tremendous amount, but the little I know is pretty fascinating. What do you know about Walt Disney? Well, I just read an article about how he came up with the castle for Walt Disney World, where he was visiting Europe and stayed in, I think it was a medieval 
castle. And I think the guy that the, that created the castle was not the best character in the the world. You can go there on tours, yeah. right? Yeah. So you are fascinated with Disney. You go to Orlando. It's close to Disney. Is it a good place to learn about film? It was supposed to be a great place to learn about film because I think that the big claim of fame at the time was that the Blair Witch Project filmmakers were there and it made the school famous. I ended up getting down there, but then I found out after I finished that first semester and all my general education classes were done and I had submitted to get into the film program, they said, well, you didn't submit a portfolio with all your work. So, so it would be another wor- it would be another year before I could oh, take no, take so film first classes. they made you take geology and yeah. all those classes and now you can't get into what you want to do exactly so you transfer again I transfer again where to to Columbia in Chicago now that's a film school as opposed to Columbia University the yeah. Ivy League school yeah and it's a great film school supposedly like the largest film school in the nation at this point so finally you're in the right spot yeah. And you graduate top of the class. Well, I think my parents were like, okay, you need to do this. And I was at, I was just like, let me just get this done so I can, so I can get out of here and actually take a stab at the film industry. And what happened then? So then I moved out to LA. So I, my last semester I finished in LA and I knew I was going to move out to LA. And as soon as I was done with school, I got a job as a PA, like everybody starts at the bottom in the film industry, working for a mid-level studio that was doing about five or six films a year, ranging from like 15 to $50 million budgets. And one of the interesting things about going to film school is I'm very business oriented. Going back to that young kid, I wanted to learn how you actually create businesses, how the business of the film industry worked and realize they don't teach you anything about that in film school, nothing about business. So I figured the best way to learn about business was start your own. And the most cost efficient way at the time was to start internet companies. So I started a few internet companies while I was going to school just to learn and experiment. And then when I moved out to LA to pursue a career in film, this is around 2005, I just noticed that there was a reawakening to digital after the dot-com bust. Because the entertainment industry is pretty slow to adapt things, but they were starting to see the emergence of and the importance of social media platforms and digital platforms and how it could promote their brands, promote their movies. And I think one of the key areas and reasons I, I've had success over the course of my life and career is I'm always looking to provide unique value. I'm looking to stand out. How can I provide the most unique value to people uh, to foster a relationship? Uh, so I just saw that there was a lot of high profile producers directors, actors, asking how do we use digital platforms? How do we use social media to make, to generate more success for our films? And just basically leverage that knowledge in creating those internet companies to get my foot in the door and really start my career. Is that what takes you to Taylor Swift? For that mid-level studio, I was working for them for about three and a half years. And while, while I was working with that studio, I was kind of getting bored of the corporate structure. So I I noticed that this thing called MySpace got acquired for close to $600 million by News Corp. And I wanted to understand, well, why is it worth $600 million? How is it going to be monetized? And what I noticed is that it was being monetized through CPM advertising, banner advertisement. And it was like low, very low end CPM advertising. It wasn't worth $600 million. So I was just doing further research and what I noticed what was happening 
is people were putting their own advertisements on their page. They were grabbing their favorite movie trailer, their favorite Nike poster, uh, their favorite music video, and putting it on their MySpace profile and sharing it with all their friends. And I was like, well, that's the most valuable form of advertising. It's peer-to-peer marketing. So what I decided to do was build an advertising technology that could actually monetize that interaction. Wow. And I only realized it two or three years ago, but essentially it's probably one of the first influencer advertising platforms ever built. Cause this was like in the very early stages of MySpace. And you're having fans do the work of the company by yeah. spreading what they like about what's being produced. Yeah. Wow. So I built that platform. I, I had actually gotten the head of the studio to give me the seed money to build that technology platform while I was working for the studio. And I brought it to several players. I mean, I mistakenly should have sold the patents to Facebook because I had a meeting with them when there was still like 400, 400 employees, but they're like, we don't need the technology. We just, if, we, if we're gonna do anything, we just want the patents. And I was just young and naive at the time. What if you would have sold the patents? I have no idea what would have happened, but it would have probably been far more lucrative than <laughs> where, where it ended up. But, uh, I shopped it around to different places because the idea was really to build a prototype and then get somebody to really invest in it and take it take it out. I mean, we built it for, I think, less than $30,000. We didn't spend a lot of money building this prototype of the technology. And ultimately what happened was I had a meeting at Viacom with, it, with about 16 of their top executives. And there's one particular executive there that saw the potential in it. So he's like, hey, let's, let's do a deal. And interestingly enough, it's easier to get licensing deals done at Viacom than acquisition deals. They don't look at anything until they're ready to spend like two or $300 million on something. So I got a, a licensing deal done at Viacom for this platform. And what happened was we started running tests and we started running tests with some of the things that they had invested in. So they had invested in Rock Band was a big thing and they had invested in Vice. And what happened was, is the technology was outperforming everything else that they were selling that their sales team couldn't really get behind it because it made all of their other ad units look bad because the click-through rates were so much higher. But also we ran into a scalability issue because this was very early stages of MySpace. We're not in the days where there's millions of influencers in the market today. So ultimately, we created another iteration for Vice that never got launched. Uh, but the reason I got that deal is because few people realize is Vice's video arm was actually started with an MTV. MTV gave them the initial funding and it was a 50-50 joint venture. And the executive that saw the potential in Vice was the one that I did the licensing deals with. So that platform just didn't take off in the way it could have because I think it was too early. But what I'm getting from this is that you were in on this from the ground floor. Yeah. You were understanding this idea of how do you build a following digitally? I don't know that I fully understood it. I would say that I kind of understood the concept of it. And the interesting thing is also, I did the first ever influencer campaign on YouTube. I think this is back in like 2006, 2007, before influencers was even a term. So there was a movie that I was working on called uh, Crank with Jason Statham. And we didn't have big marketing budgets. And I saw that there's these 
YouTubers that had huge audiences. And I said, well, why don't we just tap into them? So I messaged about the top 100 of them, basically saying, do you want to interview a movie star? And I think five responded and those five were really big and it was a really successful campaign. I think that I just saw that there was a large potential to tap into. And again, there wasn't this term influencer. It wasn't the the, the multi-billion dollar industry it was today. I just saw that there was power and influence there that could be recognized and nobody was really paying attention to it. So I was just finding different ways to really harness it and maximize the potential of it for the projects I was working on. Does it strike you as odd that like you're coming in on these areas that you would think other people would know about because if they did, it would really help their business? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes I second guess myself because of it. Sometimes I'm like, am I really headed in the right direction or am I just seeing something that nobody else is, especially early on. Now I kind of recognize you that, have a talent in yeah, this area. That, that, that you I can, can smell things. Yeah. I mean, I basically, I've made a living off of seeing things differently. And there's reasons that I can go into of why I think that is from, from early childhood, uh, if that's interesting. But I've really, I think that that's what makes me different is, is I don't necessarily come up with things from scratch. I come up with, I understand how to break down comp complex problems or complex solutions into easily digestible Oh, well that things. right there, that's definition of genius. And then I just, once I figure out how to, cause I have to simplify it for myself. Like, so I can understand it. And once I understand it, then I can scale it. It's like the whole book of like generating a million followers in 30 days. It's essentially it's AB testing at scale. Did I invent AB testing? No. But how, figured, how did you get from starting to build these platforms and trying to help a movie sell to Taylor Swift to writing this book, it's in front of us, one million followers, how I built a massive social following in 30 days. So after that advertising technology didn't really scale and pan out, I came up with another idea for a platform. And there's platforms like it out there today, but this was very early on. This is like 2007, 2008, but I ba basically built a platform that could dynamically write code for you. So you can start with a blank white screen and drop, drag and drop anything onto it and our system would write the code on the back end. And what we decided to use it for was building official websites for athletes and musicians uh, so that they could really transform their brand and represent their brand on the fly based upon whatever they're doing. And so I brought, brought it back to Viacom because I had the relationship there. And I said, hey, this is what I think, this is what I'm thinking, this is what the prototype I built. They loved it. And so we built another joint venture partnership with them. And in that process, the executives like, do you want to go meet this girl, Taylor Swift? And this is like, I think like 2009. So she was not like the global superstar she was today, but she was still big. Like she was still like growing. And me, I'm like, I'll meet anybody. I was like, sure, let's go and and do it. And <laughs> and uh, so, what happens when you and Taylor sit down? Well, there was a journey to get there. I mean, first I had to meet with her manager, then meet with her father, then meet with her mother, and then officially meet with her. But I enjoyed that process because you pick up information along the way of how each person, how her manager perceives. The, the business situation, the obstacles and goals, how the, how the father does, how the mother does, and also how you pick up from those conversations how Taylor perceives the world. 
So the first meeting with Taylor, I knew exactly what would excite her is she, what people don't realize about Taylor and, and she is so smart and so brilliant is she grew her fan base one by one herself. She didn't have a huge record labor of millions of dollars of marketing budget. Like she understood the value of fostering one-to-one -one communication with fans. She understood that each time she signed an autograph, each time she responded to a comment on MySpace, each time she took a photo with a, a fan, not only did it turn that fan into somebody that was gonna buy her music or, or concert tickets, it was turning them into a brand advocate. And because this was happening at a time where social media profiles were becoming an intricate part of everyday teenager life, when that new brand advocate was formed, it was no longer that these young teens were just telling three or four of their closest friends. They are now posting to their social media profiles, reaching hundreds, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people with each post. So that's what made her so effective and growing so fast. And I just knew- Why did she understand this? I think she was just very intuitive and just very smart. She just, she understood, and she still understands it today, where you see where she shows up at bridal showers. She has listening parties for her fans at her house. It's, it's authentic. She's not trying to rig the system, but she understands at a deep level that if she can impact just one fan, that story can be amplified. Wow, power of storytelling. Exactly. You know, the interesting thing parallel is I try to respond to all the emails I get. And I've been criticized for this. Everybody wants me to like put stuff in these funnels and never have to make a decision till 10 people have looked at it and said, okay, Cal, what do you want to do, A or B? And if you send me an email, I'll get back to you. Or if I, if I somehow slip through the crack, it's because there's craziness going on and I'm running from one place to another, but, but I try. So that's a good sign to me. I didn't understand what I was doing, but if I'm thinking like Taylor Swift, can't be too bad. Yeah, and there's multiple ways to grow and scale. Like we reached a point, so I built technology platforms for her team for about two years. And there was an inflection point where she just started growing too big where she couldn't, like it was just impossible for her to respond to everything. What I, happened then? How did she deal with it then? So what we did was, is when we first got in there, her website was struggling. There was a huge bounce rate. People were spending a very short amount of time. And what we ultimately ended up doing is uh, over the course of two years with the technologies that I built and, and also other technology platforms that we came in to partner with, well, we, we saw there was a huge opportunity of fostering community where, where fans could communicate with each other. And that's where the, the website really started to fall into place and having a tremendous amount of success. This is exactly where I wanted to go, to create a big table on the internet where people can come together. And I guess what they have in common is they all like to listen to this podcast. So I seem to be on the right track. Absolutely. Now it's, it's empowering them to extend that conversation out beyond the podcast. And so everybody's happy talking to each other. And that puts me in a position where I can't, I don't need to respond to all the emails because I couldn't possibly. Yeah, again, there's multiple ways to grow. Just because Taylor Swift grew that way doesn't mean that's the way that you have to grow. I'm liking it pretty good here, but go ahead. Well, that's, I mean, that's how I structured the book too, is like, I think 30% of the content is the way that I generated a million followers in 30 days and the way that I approach growth. But I recognize the way that I do it is not right for everybody. 
And that's why I went off and interviewed the top experts from around the world on their growth strategies so that you, you can give people well-rounded advice. And that that's one of the things that I really hate about social media is there's so many people out there that are self-proclaimed experts and say, there is only one way to do things. You have to do it this way or you're not gonna be successful. And I just don't believe in that. Like, there's so many different ways you can be successful and you've gotta find the right fit for you. Well, I'm pretty happy with Taylor Swift's way. So let, let's keep going. So here's my situation and you have arrived at the perfect time because what I've noticed, this podcast is almost a little like therapy to me. And the last time I was at this big table, I was talking to Jason Harris. He's the CEO of this company, Mechanism. And I was telling him that basically everything that I do revolves around helping somebody. And it occurred to me that one of the reasons that I have not built up a big social media following is because it has nothing to do with me helping anyone. It would just, in my mind, be to be out there. And so to just be out there and be bigger had no real grip on me. But then I took this National Geographic boat ship through the glaciers in Alaska and I just saw these northern lights beaming down on me, 4.30 in the morning, and it was a life-altering experience because you realize how small you are, and you also realize how we're trashing the planet, and I just want to do something about it. And so now, if the north lights is calling me, to just help out in whatever way I can. Well, it needs help. So, okay, I'll do just what your book says. One million followers in 30 days, and let's try and clean up the planet. Now I have a, a clear vision for this, and I feel good about it. And it sounds like you're just the right guy who can help me get there because I just met you a few minutes ago, and the first thing you told me is you're going to a conference this weekend to help save the planet. So the universe is aligned here. It's funny because I actually did, I had a friend that had a non-for-profit that was about protecting the ocean and I did it. I, I generated a million followers for them in 14 days uh, just to see if I could do it. <laughs> oh, I said, I said like, I'll listen, I'll, I'll let you help me, but you got to let me see if I can do it faster. I eventually want to run an experiment. I think I could do it in 48 hours. You can get a million followers in 48 hours. I think I can. <laughs> oh, man. But, but I just want to preface it by saying that going, like, I generated a million followers in 30 days, but I still work at it every day. And I really caution people, and this is a lot of the work that I do in advising people, is followers may not be the right path for you. It's not, it doesn't have to be, first off, there's this misconception that if I generate a million followers, I'm going to get all this engagement and all my problems are going to be solved. I'm going to have all these people doing all this stuff for me. And a lot of times it doesn't, because if you don't have the content to back it up and you're not constantly working on the content and optimizing the content, 
you're going to get killed in the algorithms and you're not going to get reach and those million followers are going to be worthless. In addition, if you just don't have a strategy on how you're maximizing the potential of it, then it's going to be worthless. And that's where, where I'm working with people is I first start with the question of why. Why are you doing this? What is the ultimate outcome that you're going to get from it? And from those two answers, I can guide people in that specific direction. So for you, for example, if you really want to have an impact on the planet, you don't necessarily have to generate a million followers. What we can do is harness the power of other people's audiences, like what we're doing at this event. We're collectively bringing people together that have a huge audience to amplify this message and get the message out there. Is where I typically t tell people is, don't create traffic from scratch, go where the traffic is and harness it. And I think one of the best case studies for that in recent time is YouTube. What was YouTube acquired for $1.7 billion? I think it was in less than two years. I don't know the exact time frame. But you know how they grew? Is they harnessed all MySpace's traffic. They created one of the first embeddable video players because MySpace didn't have one. And then when people started putting video, embeddable video players, YouTube players on their profile, all of your friends would see and be like, I want one. And then just amplified and they funneled all that traffic. So then they went to YouTube and left MySpace. Yeah to get their own YouTube player and embed it. And then eventually the traffic just grew so big. The, it's also Airbnb's story is amazing. What, how did they grow? They grew off of Craigslist traffic. They saw people on Craigslist were posting the rental, their properties. They went out to people on Craigslist and said, you should use Airbnb, it's safer. If we have all these features, it makes it safer for you to rent their properties. And when people signed up on Airbnb to host their property, then Airbnb went and reposted on Craigslist to go to Airbnb to rent these properties. <laughs> so, so it's just kind of that, that, that analogy of you don't always have to build your own audience because it is a lot of work. Like, yes, how I much work a day? How many hours is this going to take me a day? It now, if you're if you saying you get a million followers in two days, Hey, I'll give you 48 hours. Yeah, but then what are you going to do with it? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to do things that help save the planet. And I also want to help people who work in hospitals because I think they do miraculous things and quite often don't get the recognition for it. There's a tremendous amount of physician burnout and I just think that we should care for the people who are caring for others. So those are the two places I want to go. Well, the thing that you have to start with is what is, the, what is the sustainable model underneath it to keep it going? Even if it's a non-for-profit, even if it's for a good cause, there still needs to be a sustainable revenue source that's going to support the growth because then you're, what's going to happen and what ultimately had my, happened to my friend with the non-for-profit is we built a million followers and then they just couldn't capitalize off it because they couldn't keep the operations running. And that's where, I think it's his name's, have you seen the TED Talk, uh, Dan Pinlato? I have not. He talks about why non-for-profits and charities are broken, and it's because they don't run like a business. And people look down on non-for-profits or charities for paying people a lot of money to bring talent in, but it's like if you can't pay somebody, if like the, if you're going to pay somebody or you can only pay somebody $75,000 to be the CEO of a major non-for-profit, but that the most intelligent people can go get offers for $400,000, what are they going to do? They're going to take the $400,000 a year offer and then they're just going to just donate $75,000 a year to a charity, which is not really going to fuel the overall growth because you don't have these people that know how to operate and run businesses. 
So that's where I always start is it may not be followers. Like if you're building an e-commerce company or you're trying to generate donations or you're trying to generate uh, email registrations or put on an event and sell tickets, let's focus on campaigns for those key KPIs, generate a key revenue source, and then you can reinvest in follower growth and building audiences. And oftentimes, if you're really successful at driving the key KPIs of the business, the followers will come from that. Okay. It sounds like your advice is pretty good because I wasn't thinking of any of these things. I was just thinking, all right, I just want to get to these areas to help people. I want to speak at hospitals and alert the people who work there that it's important that they get their stories out. I want to let people know, even with all the media coverage, the damage that we're doing to the planet and the ways that people are stepping up and finding solutions. That's, that's my goal right there. And it's definitely achievable with the right strategy that's sustainable, that has a solid foundation to it. And that's what, what I would build for you is let's sit down and map that out. Because otherwise, you're going to have this huge audience and you're not going to know what to do with it. And then it's not going to be generating the results that you're looking for. And then ultimately, it's you're just going to stop doing it. I've seen it time and time again. And that's the other misconception that I see in social media. A lot of people are talking about, oh, you should post two times a day. You should post at these times. You should use these hashtags and all of these that's things. That's all malarkey. Well, it, like, I'm listen, looking it at can, your face. Your face is saying it can help a little bit, but it doesn't. Like, if you don't have good content, nothing's going to help you. And also, if you don't have a solid foundation for what your business model is or what your plan is to support that growth, it's not going to last. Like, you've got to start with the real fundamentals of why am I doing this? What is the ultimate outcome? How is this going to generate revenue so I can keep doing it? And doesn't mean like just because you have a non-for-profit or you're trying to solve something for the planet doesn't mean it doesn't require revenue. It does because otherwise it's not going to be sustainable. Like you have to have some sustainable model unless you've got Bill and Melinda Gates that are going to give you $100 million to just do whatever you want with it. Then I didn't even think of that, but I was thinking on much more of an intuitive Taylor Swift at the start because she couldn't have imagined where it was going. It doesn't sound like she was just doing... I think she had a good idea. Oh, she did, even I, from I, the beginning. I don't know if she recognized that she was going to be the biggest star on the planet, but you could see it in her eyes in the way that she spoke. She really believed in herself. She knew she was going someplace. Okay, but, but that's part of that is she knew she was putting out great music, that she was attracting these fans, and it was going to go. She also had record company behind her. But there's a business model there. She right. sells tickets. She sells merchandise. Okay. That's fueling the business. It allows her to keep producing music. Otherwise, she's going to be working at McDonald's trying to do it at the same time. Oh, okay. And so I have to put together like a storytelling workshop tour to generate ticket sales, for people to know about it, and to build it up that way. Because without something like that, a million followers doesn't really matter. At a high level, yes. I mean, there's different ways that you can go about it. But to me, I would rather build that infrastructure first where you're selling courses or you're selling talks or you're generating revenue so that you have a sustainable base that then you can reinvest in more content to build a social audience and keep that social audience engaged. Okay. All right. So just say, I'd say, all right, I'm, I'm completely game to go out 
and speak about helping clean up the planet, completely game to go hospital to hospital to let everybody know that the people who do the caring for the patients need to be appreciated more. And we should look at the miraculous things they're doing every day. We tend to just walk in and feel like everything's gonna be taken care of. You know, I want you to think about this. Somebody goes in for surgery, right? And the surgeon goes to operate, patient comes through, everything's fine. What about the person whose job was to wash those surgical instruments and make sure that there was no possibility of infection? Does, does anybody ever think about those people? And, and, and that's like the first line of defense at a hospital. And nobody knows anybody's name who's doing that. And I just think healthcare gets such negative press now. And the people who are actually doing the caring get lost because they don't tell their stories. And so I want those stories to start to come out. Am I in the wrong place to try and build a following of people to let them know this? No, you're not in the wrong place at all. I would just start at a different place. It seems like you're gonna have the most impact talking to people in the medical field, in hospitals, as the first place to start. Okay. So strategically- I've already started that. So what I would do is, I would find out who are the key people in each hospital or what are the key conferences that reach the most people and who makes the decisions for bringing in education into those places. And then I would strategically target those people either on LinkedIn or extract those emails from LinkedIn and put it in an automated email cadence, or you could do strategic Facebook and Instagram marketing <laughs> I, campaigns. I'm an old school guy. When you say autom what was that automatic email cadence? Yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. Basically, you can extract emails, put it into a system where it automatically send emails out to a large group of people. A cadence means is, let's say we want to do 10 emails over the course of 30 days, because not everybody's going to read each email, but also you've got to build a storyline. So you can extract those emails. Let's just say you, you identify 10,000 medical professionals that you think that you could have an impact or that's your target audience. You can extract their contact information, put them into a system, a CRM system like a HubSpot or something like that, and plan out an automated email cadence to seed this idea of having you come in. We had a lot of success with this. So we built, I helped build a, a social media optimization firm where we were optimizing social spend on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and, and Twitter. And we knew exactly who to target in, within each organization. So we would craft and test messages to these people within these organizations. First, we started off on LinkedIn, and then as LinkedIn got saturated, we would extract their emails and put them in this automated email cadence. But because we were so successful at doing that, we were able to, and I think it was like less than four years, go from managing $300,000 a year in spend to $100 million a year in spend. What? I closed, I think close to $20 million worth of revenue off of cold outreach on LinkedIn what? using the, these, these methodologies. Man, I, I, you know what? I gotta just smack myself on the side of the head and just get in the new game. It's very hard for me to imagine writing a note 
to like more than one person and making it personal. But you're testing these so it seems personal to everybody who gets them? I mean, there's some people strategically, we still do personal outreach. Like if there's a CMO of a company that we know is a huge win for us or, or a VP of marketing, then we'll craft something specific to them. But if we're going, like for you, if you're going to the masses and trying to really have impact across hospitals across the world. I do, that's what I yeah, wanna well do. Well then you've got, you've got to automate it. You've got to, you've got to create some type of cadence that's still, to me, I don't think people care if it's personal. I think that people care if it's providing value to them. And that's what wow. made us successful, is that wow. we identified pain points that would make their job easier, would make them more successful, that would make them look like a rock star to their boss or would increase their profitability. That's what people care about. They don't care Way about- Way more if, than if I'm yeah. being authentic. Well, it still needs to be authentic. The value right. needs to be authentic, but right. I don't think people care as much of, oh, they recognize something about my kids or, or something I did in my past job, is this gonna provide value to me? Like, is this gonna provide value to my job, to my workforce, to whatever I'm trying to accomplish? That's what's gonna you know, wake, wake people up and get them to respond. All so right. for you, I, if you're trying to have an impact, it's like, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just throwing off ideas off the top of my head, but positioning it like reducing churn within hospitals, reducing the risk and the mistakes that happen in hospitals or something along those lines that is really gonna capture the head of HR or the head of education that's gonna be like, if I bring this person in, it's gonna provide a lot of value to what I'm trying to achieve, but also it's gonna provide a lot of value to our bottom line and to the rest of the hospital. Okay, so it's, it's my job here to make people look like rock stars. Unless you're going after the CEO of the company, and in that case, then it's how are you gonna improve their business and make their business more successful? But generally, generally we like to start with a top down, but like CEO of like Viacom is gonna be very difficult to kind of get them to respond. So you're typically dealing with like a CMO or a VP of marketing, like C-level suites, and their job is to look good to their superiors or look good to their board of directors or look good to their stockholders, whatever that may be. That's one way, or it just makes their job easier. Like we won a lot of business doing that. Like 98% of our clients were media agencies. The companies that people go to to buy the media were our customers. We were buying media for them because they were stretched so thin and we're like, we'll make you look really good. We'll make your job a lot easier and we'll increase the, the overall performance. And that's what allowed us to win a lot of business. I see, now that makes sense to me. All this, the automation stuff, I'm gonna have to leave to the specialists. <laughs> so I gotta sit down and really think this through then. I, I did it for a purpose. Like the reason the book is 1 million followers, how I built a massive social audience in 30 days and zero to a million followers in 30 days is it's a hook point. It brings people in. It brings people in so I can teach them what they really need to know. Like we started talking about a million followers, but now I'm getting you to where the real work can happen and where I can really provide value to you is through strategically showing you a roadmap of how to really generate success. And I talk about it in the book, but I think we live in a world now where there's 60 billion messages sent on digital platforms each day through social media, through text messages, through emails, phone calls, you have to find a unique way to stand out. And this is where I come up with this concept of a hook point that I've used in my book and I help other people with, because if you can't capture people in less than three seconds, 
you're just gonna get lost in that clutter. And most people do, as most people get lost in that clutter, whether they're sending an email out, whether they're sending a message on LinkedIn, whether they're sending a social piece of content out, they get lost and they can their voice can't be heard and then they ultimately don't have the impact that they're looking for. All right, so if I got three seconds, I basically gotta say, hey, this is valuable to you. Yes, it's, it's either that or you've got to position it as a level of intrigue can work a lot as well. So where I really honed this craft is I spent two years working with Katie Couric when she made the transition from traditional television to, to Yahoo and a digital first strategy. Online, right. And that was a tough transition because she was going from like the Today Show where there's a habitual nature built in with consumers. They just know if I tune in every day at 9 a.m. or whatever time it was, there's Katie delivering the news or the stories. And people will just watch it for whatever it is because that's a part of their morning routine. Versus you go to a digital first strategy, you're fighting all this noise. There's not a set time that you're tuning in every day. And her content was getting lost in the clutter. So I had to, to sit down and work with her and, and basically reverse engineer the art of the interview for digital platforms in order to be successful. And I did about 220 interviews with her ranging from like Joe Biden to DJ Khalid to Jessica Chastain, all across the board. And through those 220 interviews, I ended up testing 75,000 variations of content and just rapidly iterating to find the hook points within each interview that would grab the attention to make somebody watch the full interview. And that's where I just started training my mind and also seeing the power of that, of packaging content in a specific way just to kind of show in perspective, I won't give the name of the company, but it's one of the largest tech companies in the world. I was brought in using this hook point concept and I went up against their media agency, which had a $500,000 media buy. I had a $100,000 media buy and using this rapid iteration process, I was able to save them $31 million in traffic acquisition costs with a $100,000 media buy, just rapidly iterating and seeing what hook points would drive the most traffic to their destination. Well, I don't know what rapidly iterating on the internet means, but I trust you. <laughs> and I'm what I'm really realizing here is this is this is highly specialized. You really need to know what you're doing. Or am I wrong? Can somebody naively go into this and just start picking up traffic? The way that my mind works is I figure out what a complex, I learn complex solutions and I have to distill it down into simple forms now, for myself. I got it. So you're looking at the goal line on the other side of the field and distilling it down to what's the easiest way for me to get there. Yeah. All right. Which is a lot different from there I am on the other side of the field trying to get a yard here, a yard two, seeing what works. In two days, you want to be down in the uh, touchdown. Yeah. But it takes me, like, it took me three and a half years to develop the system that allowed me to generate a million followers in 30 days. But now that I have the system, I could teach it to anybody. I mean, I broke it down in the book. Like, sure, are you gonna pick it up and be as good as me in doing it? No, it's gonna take you some time, but you'll understand the fundamentals of how it works. And that's what interests me, and I keep doing it over and over again. Like, I'm known for generating followers, but that's where we break down the strategy of setting automated email cadences. How do we reach people strategically from a B2B standpoint? Like there's so many different areas because I, I don't focus just on social follow up. It's just one thing I do. Like I like to learn things and break them down and then share that information and teach people how to do it better. Okay, so what was the idea 
the moment that set you off on this journey to write the book, A Million Followers, how I built a massive social following in 30 days. So my true passion is thought leadership, teaching people, inspiring people. That's what I've just, it took me a long time to figure that out. Uh, but I just realized that that's what I want to focus my life doing. You want to help and, people do. Yeah, exactly. And I thought a book could be a cornerstone to launching that. And one of your friends is one of my inspirations, Tim Ferriss. And I just saw what he did with the four hour work week. So I'm like, okay, if Tim Ferriss did this with the four hour work week, maybe I should start with a book. One million followers. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, so I knew I could do it, but I was like, I called the literary agent that I knew. And I was like, if I do this, can we turn this and sell this to a publisher? And he's like, yes. And I was like, okay, then I'm going to do it. Because again, it starts with a why. Why am I doing it? I didn't just go and do this blindly. I did it because I knew this literary agent was signed me. I would get a publishing deal. Then it would allow me to speak around the world, get on podcasts, and have an impact on the world. And that's kind of where the inspiration started. You know, what's kind of interesting about this, as we're talking this out, it's genius. But I, I, I never have approached an adventure where I knew what the end was before I started. I wonder if that takes some of the magic and the romance out of it, or maybe I just need to get with the game and understand what my end goal is, figure out how I'm gonna get there, and then try and do it. For me, I just it's fascinating to think about a bigger goal and then figure out how you actually make it happen. Wow. That's how I it's look so, at things. It's so wild. It, 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 now that I, if I'm looking at the world through your lens, I have wasted a lot of time. I don't think so. You're remarkably successful. So you got here somehow. It worked for you. I know, but think of all the time that I could have used to go wherever I was supposed to go. I just, I don't know. I, I just look at things differently. It was funny. I was sitting down with a friend of mine that's very successful and he broke it down to me that I didn't even realize but you're you're familiar with a thousand true fans yeah Kevin Kelly yeah. right so my friend broke it down to me and said you're actually doing the reverse of the thousand true fans because I came from the I started off in the movie industry and the movie industry is like you have to create a brand in three months and that brand has to reach a hundred million people otherwise your business flops so I could never go into a meeting and pitch something that was going to rip reach 10,000 or 100,000 or even just a million people. So my brain early on was trained to think as large as possible. Wow. So what I oh, did with, with this concept is I just went as big as possible. I went a million followers in 30 days, but I didn't like I didn't build a thousand true fans in 30 days because it's a brand new connection. But I leveraged that hook point and that story to get people to read a book and spend 30 hours with me, to get on podcasts, to get on television, where those thousand true fans have now been built by going wide first and then narrowing back oh, in. Oh man, you have just possibly changed my life because it's, it's gonna change my whole way of thinking. I gotta just think like the big table. Maybe that's why we're at the big table here. If I can start to think that way, I'll get the thousand followers easy because I'm thinking of a hundred million. I like to think of things in that way. You think big. Because if you think big, even if you think a million followers and you only hit 100,000, it's still a lot better than where you were at. 
and then how you let, but the most important thing is how do you leverage it? And what I'm interested in is, and this is the second book I'm working on right now, is, is the convergence of online and offline. Most people just use online as its online component, but I think that there's far more power if you can take what you do online and leverage it offline. So for example, with my book, I leveraged what I did online to offline conversations, to this conversation we're having right here, to getting on stage in front of people, to getting on television. And you're, it's an interesting what you're seeing also with some of the biggest e-commerce players. What is Amazon doing? They just bought Whole Foods. Warby Parker, they're opening physical ro- uh, locations. Casper, that intersection between online and offline is where real brand grows and where that real growth opportunity, I think, is in the future. And I think people think limitedly about, I want to generate a, a lot of followers or a big online audience, but they don't think about how they can translate that into offline conversations to really fuel brand and have success. All right. This is the start of something big. Don't know what it is. You probably do, but we're going to pick this up and between say October and the end of the year, I'm going to do what you say to make a major push because I want to help clean up the planet and I want to help people who work in hospitals, people who do the caring. I just watched a group of them help save a friend of mine over five months in the hospital. And I want to make sure that they get the recognition that they deserve. And I'm going to figure out how to do it. So we'll leave it at this. And you've basically got me to look to the end of the big table. I'm seeing 1 million followers on the cover of your book. I'm hearing 100 million people when you're planning ahead. I now know that's how I got to think. This was a great hour because I'm thinking that way now. Thank you very much. This is just the first step. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. If I was thinking your way, who would have known what was going to happen? So there's still a lot of time left. Yeah, there's never too late. Let's make the best of the ticks of those clocks. All right, brother. We'll see you down the tracks. Cheers. Thank you. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. I'm expanding with it in business by the week. I want to thank Doran Duffin at Kaiser Permanente and Dr. David Marcus at Valley View Hospital in Colorado for urging me on as well. Hospitals, clinics, healthcare, I'm coming your way. Thank you all for your emails and support. If I can forge forward in this new business landscape, trust me, so can you. Remember, only a few years ago, I didn't even know how to summon an Uber. Now I'm teaching people how to start podcasts. Have a great week. And don't forget, if you want to roam in comfort, check out sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com for the softest hoodies, sweatpants, and t-shirts. Use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. You're going to see why. I'm in my Sportique threads as I speak these very words. Cheers. Cheers.